Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. A quick warning about this week's episode. There is some content of a graphic sexual nature, so listener discretion is surely advised. I'm very happy to have with me today Nathan Gorenstein, former investigative reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer, Pulitzer Prize nominee, and author of Tommy Gun Winter, Jewish Gangsters, a preacher's daughter, and the trial that shocked 1930s Boston. Welcome to Most Notorious. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So when did you first hear about the Millen-Faber gang, and and why did you decide to write a book about them? Well, I first heard of one person, I didn't even know his name at the time, but there was a bank robber in our family. And this was when I was... uh, Home for home from college on a vacation of some sort. My sister came over to tell me that our grandmother had said there was a bank robber in the family. And I sort of shrugged at the time and didn't think much of it. And didn't know anything else about it until many years later. Um, this would be the late 90s when I was a retirement party for a relative who my mother had babysat for us. And my mother by this point was probably over 80, and Billy was probably, who was retiring, was 15, and uh, someone came up to my mother, who's, who was a very laid-back woman, very like good humor, wanted peace, and talked to her, and she came over to my father and I, all upset, which is really unlike her. I said, this woman was so impolite, she wanted to talk about the Millen brothers, and my father said, it was a, as I say in the book, was a bit of a tough guy, I said, oh, I would have married you anyway. And that was interesting. I said, what was this about? And and so I started doing research on that and found out 
that it wasn't just one guy, it was brothers, it wasn't just brothers, it was an MIT grad, it was a minister's daughter. And it, they weren't just bank robbers, they were killers. And they ended up having the longest murder trial in the state history. So I started doing research and was, sort, you know, I'm a reporter, so in reporting you sort of know when you have a good story because as you report something out, the facts become more interesting or the events become more intriguing. Sometimes you report a story and it becomes sort of duller as you go along. In this case, it became ever more fascinating. Uh, and so I knew I had a story there, but I was unable to write it. And it wasn't until I became an editor and then went back to my own writing that I sort of had the mental acuity, lack of a better phrase, to see what I had to do to make my earlier proposal work. So I did that, and I got a proposal, and got a book contract. So let's begin with Mert and Irv Millen. Their family story is incredibly interesting and, and tragic in a way, too. Describe Mert and Irv, if you would, their personalities, their relationship, and how their childhoods affected them. Sure. Um, first, let me give the family connection. Mert, Mert and Irv were my first cousins twice removed which I never understand, but what it means is that uh, their father and my great-grandfather were brothers. So if if our fathers were brothers, we, they would have been my first cousins, but it was a grandfather and a great-grandfather, so that makes them twice removed. Their father was a uh, blacksmith who had come over from Russia and set up a wrought iron business, and he was a violent, probably psychopathic man in his own right. Uh, he married a woman who was a bookkeeper, and he regularly beat and abused his children. He had a particular eye out for Mert. My guess is that Mert was what we would now call a problem child. He probably acted out. He probably was uh, virtually immune to parental discipline. And the old man really sort of wanted to move his family in a very autocratic manner. And Mert was the last guy, who, the last kid who would follow that. So there was a very violent, tempestuous relationship between the two. And if Mert, as he probably already did, had inherited some of his father's sociopathic traits, this only made it worse. It taught him that the answer to things is, is violence or a way to, to, to relieve tension is violence. His brother, who's a couple years younger, was mentally limited. Um, it's hard to know, you know. The terminology back then is very different from now. And when he was in court, people, the psychiatrist called him an imbecile. Well, he wasn't an imbecile. That was the, the term of art back then. Then it would have become mentally retarded. Now it would be a, a, a special child. So it's hard to connect exactly with, with current terminology. But he probably had an IQ of under 100. He probably had the mentality of a 14-year-old, uh, and he looked up to his brother. He idealized his brother. And so when Mert made the move into crime, he dragged his brother along with him. As, as Mert later said, he was his henchman, that he used to have to beat him to make him follow and until he got to the point where he could just issue commands. Merv was smart, really smart, and self-aware. Uh, so self-aware of his own shortcomings that he he actually went into a library and began to research what might be causing his emotional and mental issues. I mean, he tried to diagnose himself, didn't he? 
correct. You know, he his household was very chaotic, and the whole neighborhood knew there were um, six living children. Five others had died in childbirth or, or, or shortly thereafter. And the, again, as I said, their father, Joe, was was um, crazy himself, and there was constant turmoil and upheaval, and they were sort of the joke of the whole neighborhood. And Mert knew that this wasn't normal. He was a smart enough guy by the time he became a teenager to know that how his family existed was not how the other families existed. And I think he saw, I think I know, he saw inside his own head that something wasn't right. So he he was smart enough and perceptive enough to go to the public library, and he started reading sort of popular and clinical psychiatric textbooks. Um, one of the ones he chose was by a number of books by a guy by the name of Abraham Meyerson, who's sort of lost to history now, but in his day, Meyerson was one of the best-known popular psychiatrists in the country, and he had published a widely read book about um, the psychological travails of a housewife, and he had written another book on the uh, genetic inheritance, the family inheritance of insanity. And uh, so that was that was one author he read. And Mert, through all this reading, Mert concluded that he was uh, paranoid, that he was manic depressive. And he ultimately, at the same time, I should say, he was coping with his brother, who had a very bad stutter and was very unhappy also, because he essentially, between his stutter and his mental limit, limits, his, his younger brother, Irv, also had a very unhappy, troubled life. And so Mert was, despite his own issues, Mert sought out Myerson originally so Irv could see him. And, and his Mert, who's this kid from, you know, uh, the family's economic well-being went up and down. On, on the years when the contracting businesses would be good, they were very fluent, affluent. Other years, they, you know, particularly as the Depression came on, they, they, were, they were broke. But Mert seeks out this, this um, then Tufts University, later Harvard University professor, and gets his brother into sale. And then he goes himself to go and get a diagnosis from Myerson. And in Myerson's papers, he concludes, and this is in his private file, he concludes that Mert's a sociopath. And this is when Mert would have been 18, 19, 17, 18, 19. Uh, I don't know whether he ever told Mert that. Instead, he, he sort of told Mert to sort of buck up. You know, he told him to stop writing his journal, stop reading psychiatric textbooks, and get on with his life. So he, he tried, Myerson tried to give Mert the sort of tough love thing, but as we know, it, it didn't work out. It, ironically, Myerson ended up being one of the psychiatrists at the trial, and, uh, there were complaints from family members that Myerson had not done what he should have done to the, what that is is unclear, but he didn't act to diffuse what became a sociopathic murderer. But um, Mert never went on to college. He uh, considered killing himself and actually made a plan to do it down in Virginia where he was visiting a friend, but described that he was out on a beach with poison in his pocket, was going to kill himself. And he had this, which we would consider this manic episode, where he suddenly felt plugged into the universe and decided that he was going to, by force of will, was going to change his mind and make himself a superman, a success. But this time he's 19 or 20 and doesn't know what to do with himself. 
And that's an extraordinary event. I mean, it's clearly he's he's having a, a, a manic episode. Clearly, there's this grandiosity there. And and at that point, he he sort of started moving towards crime uh, when he got back to Boston. So the other key member of what would be known as the Millen-Faber gang was Abe Faber. His childhood was much different than the Millen boys. Could you talk about Abe Faber, how he grew up, and, and how he first met Mert Millen? Sure. So Abe, they all grew up in, in different parts of the, what was then a very large Jewish community in Boston, most of it immigrant from Russia that's fascinating. If you read the census tracts, most of the women who had come over uh, in that wave of immigration from Russia were illiterate, uh, which is my grandmother actually was illiterate. I, I didn't know this until recently. She was a little older, but she came later than those folks did. But uh, So Abe's, Abe's parents came over. Uh, Abe's father was a sort of meek, and both his mother and father were meek, mild people. Abe's father uh, had a stutter, which made him very shy. His mother never worked out of the home. And the only had the couple only had one child, which was Abe. So her life revolved around taking care of Abe. And there was testimony that from the grade school through the time he was arrested, and by that time he was in his mid-20s, she made his lunch every day. And for that entire time, he always came home and stayed overnight at his parents' house. So one might say he was a mama's boy, but he was a really smart mama's boy. He became the kid uh, people went to in the neighborhood to fix radios. His father, who doted on him, his folks doted on him, bought him a a motorcycle that he took apart when he was in high school and created a three-wheeled car and was driving it around the neighborhood and would boast to people that this was going to become the next great thing. Oh, Abe was similar to Merton that he had his own grandiosity, moments of grandiosity, which would pop up off and on over time. He and Mert grew up in the same general vicinity that lived a couple of miles apart. They met in high school at one point and knew each other somewhat. Exactly what their relationship in high school years is, it remains a little unclear, but the relationship resumed at some point after high school. He uh, became attracted, infatuated. And it's really remarkable if you read the things he wrote and the testimony he later gave. He was in love with him. And there's testimony that he used to drive over to, after he graduated from MIT, he used to drive over to Mert's house in Dorchester, climb into Mert's bedroom window, which meant scrambling up a large portico, up a column, and spend the night there. And this was a regular thing that everyone knew about. And what happened in there is unclear. Uh, we don't know. But there was certainly a, a level of homoerotic attraction there, certainly on uh, Abe's part. And Mert, it's hard to tell. But the one interesting thing, one of the jobs he had when he got out of high school was as a window decorator. He worked in a window decorating firm, you know, for department stores. And in those days, window decorating firms, window decorators were gay. I mean, that was sort of like a safe job for a homosexual man to take in those days. Yet Mert spent a year working there. So Mert's own sexuality was, was a little bit unclear. Um, let me just bounce back to Abe for a sec. He got into MIT and he became an aeronautical engineer at a time when it was an extraordinarily competitive field. 
only 30 people a year were allowed into the MIT program, which was taught by the men who literally wrote the book on aeronautical engineering. This is in 1927, uh, 30. And he got into the program. He graduated. He was an officer in ROTC, commissioned in, in the Army Reserve, and became an expert shot. He was, uh, in fact, a, a very famous scientist, Draper, saw Abe shoot in an ROTC camp and came away amazed. He told his friends that the guy could make any shot in the world. So this relationship between Merv Millen and Abe Faber, I mean, it's similar in many ways to the relationship between Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, uh, who I did a podcast about. I think it was my second podcast. Both of these duos were misfits in a way, smart and talented, but they, they fed off of each other in some really unhealthy ways, too. Would you say that that's accurate? Yeah, I think the the uh, emotional dynamics between Murd and Irv and Leopold and Loeb have a real similarity. I mean, Leopold and Loeb were much uh, aff- more affluent people at a much higher social class. Abe's father was a tailor. His mother didn't work. Irv worked, at, Murd's brother worked as a mediocre car mechanic. And what Murd did is, is he had a bunch of odd, not particularly well-paid jobs. So yes, that that dynamic between Leopold and Loeb and 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 Mert and and Abe was there, but it expressed itself in a different way. Mert and his younger brother began a couple of years before the bank robbery that got them into the get biggest trouble, or eighteen months before. So they started knocking over corner stores and movie theaters. Um, they became known. Police didn't know who they were, but they picked up a modus operandi called knocking over box offices, which in those days was relatively easy because, you know, if you know those old movie theaters, the ticket booth would be out halfway on the sidewalk. And so they, they came up with a um, plan and they would knock those over on a regular basis so the Boston police would call it the box office boys. But there was an edge to what they did. They started kidnapping people. There's one famous incident where, where Mert and Irv drive to a theater owner's home, kidnap him, bring him into town and force him to open the safe. And that's not the first time they do that. That's not the only time they do that. They do that on a number of occasions. And and that's, that's a certain, I don't want to say uh, risk-taking, I guess I do want to say risk-taking, a certain quest for, I mean, he, he had some need for the excitement. Um, he, he, it was he kind of a bravado, that, wasn't it? Yeah, but he had a really feel. That's a pretty dangerous thing to do. And you get... It's risky, but you get to have absolute control over somebody. Uh, you, you bend them to your will. And these are all things that Mert could do. Mert was a bit of a charismatic guy. And that Abe, as he would later say, found admirable and wanted to be like Mert. There's some extraordinary language that, that Abe uses in describing his feelings towards Mert. This is Abe talking about Mert after his arrest. Now, Abe had gone, when he became an aeronautical engineer, he, he, his specialty was engines. And, and Mert considered himself a great engineer and mechanic, too. And Abe described his friend Mert as having great mechanical knowledge. And this is a quote now. He tackled problems that I thought almost impossible for a fellow with his education, yet would come through successfully. There were many men in my class that weren't as good as Murray, even though they're graduates of MIT. That wasn't all Abe found appealing, quote. 
He was an all-around good athlete. He was physically strong and not afraid of anything. He always finished what he started to do, no matter how long it took him. He could do almost everything I could not. I felt an attraction towards him, Abe said. And when his life was about to end, Abe put it this way, I cannot deny that Mert made my mind his slave. And he, he, he didn't back off from that, even at the very end of his life. Those were still his sentiments. Despite the fact that he had a girlfriend who apparently he never had, he never kissed. And as far as we can tell, because there was a lot of, this became an issue at the trial, there was a lot of testimony about everyone's personal history. Abe only had sex a couple of times with a prostitute he hired when he was a student at MIT. And he, he found that the heterosexual act to be disgusting. Um, he never had uh, intimate relationships with his girlfriend. In fact, whether she was being literal or not, or she may have been, she said he, he never even kissed her. But, you know, Abe, in the middle of the Depression, in an insular Jewish community, was a big catch. He was this guy who had gone to MIT. Mert, on the other hand, his, the first regular girlfriend you know he had, um, he picked up at a beachfront dance hall about a year and a half after he had gotten into crime, and months after he and Abe had been having these nighttime rendezvous in his bedroom. And she was a, a woman, 18-year-old, Norma Brighton, who was beautiful. Uh, she was a daughter of divorced parents, a minister, though, which was very unusual. Her mother, too, was a bit of a psychological loose cannon. And the exact reasons why the parents got divorced are, are contested, but the father would say that her behavior became impossible for a minister, for a minister's wife, and they had to be divorced. So she was living out in the suburbs. Yeah, he met her, he picked her up at a dance hall in Nantasket Beach, south of Boston, on Labor Day weekend, 1932. And there had to be some instant attraction because uh, the next day he drove uh, Norma and her mother home. It was a from, from Nantasket Beach out to the suburbs of Massachusetts, which was an hour's long drive. And Merch started showing up uh, every couple of days at Norma's house, much to the ire of his father, who uh, was very protective of his daughter, never liked the fact that she danced or went out with boys. She thought it, he thought it was very uh, improper. And she was eager to experience life. There's a huge clash. And after a couple of weeks of them seeing each other, the father, the minister, Norman Brighton, his daughter was Norma Brighton, uh, always a bit confusing, but the minister laid down the law to his daughter and she ran away with Mert rather than give him up. She moved into, Mert took her into Boston and initially found her a, a rooming house, but she ended up living with the Millen family for most of the time in, in Boston, in uh, Dorchester, I'm sorry. And she became very good friends with Mert's younger sister. And I think she, 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 had a, she had a good time there. I think she experienced a warm family or a family life. And it was warm in, in the extent that the other family members by this time had coalesced around themselves to exclude their fathers. So the other siblings who were all late teens, early 20s, still living at home, had become very protective of their mother and, and, and Joe, was really on the outs. So when she got accepted by the rest of the Millen family, I think she felt that it was a warm, pleasant place to be. So she's living there, but Mert and Abe become estranged. 
And my supposition, which I think is, is accurate based on all that testimony, is that Mert was, uh, Abe was jealous of Norma and her place in Mert's life. He had been asserted. He was, he used to be number one in Mert's emotional life, and now he was a, a number two to this woman, Norma. They were still committing crimes, but up until this time, Mert had never killed anybody. He had kidnapped people, and in fact, would do a massive heist in October that same fall when he uh, and his brother drove out to Worcester and kidnapped another theater manager and his wife, and then another guy ended up kidnapping, and another guy ended up kidnapping four people, seizing a police officer, opening up a safe in, a, in the largest theater in, in Worcester and made off of four or $5,000, which was a good chunk of change back then, came back, and that money allowed him to buy another car and also to get married. So in November... 1932, he proposes to Norma, who's very ambivalent about it. She goes to her mother, what should I do? And the mother says, well, since you're living off him, you have to marry him. But up until this time, Mert and Norma had never had a sexual relationship. So they get married, and they still don't have a sexual relationship. That wedding night is a failure. And, it's, and they don't have sex until just before he gets caught. But in that interim, Mert starts killing people. And and the best guess is that, well, not best guess clearly, his anger at the emotional turmoil of his sexual or her sexual failure or the couple's sexual fa- failure, because it was really a joint, issue, a joint issue, combined with his criminal proclivities, his sociopathic feeling, his anger towards the law, led to a murder. What happened was that Mert and Irv and Abe, uh, and Abe got involved because they wanted to get back into Mert's emotional good graces. They decided to set up a, a crime team, uh, become a team, and start commit regular robberies. And their model were the famous gangsters of that era, Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd. I mean, they read about their excerpts and they explicitly modeled themselves after those guys. But they wanted better weapons. So they drove out again to Western Massachusetts and decided they would kidnap the owner and their clerk in a gun shop. But that went bad. And when the clerk resisted, Mert killed him. And that was the first time Mert had ever killed anybody. Abe was present. Mert was present. Irv was present. Irv and Mert fired their guns. There were 10 shots, 22 caliber. The guy took about three days to die, but he did. And Mert's reaction was, was very cool. Afterwards, there was some conversation that Mert boasted that for his first job, he was a pretty good shooter. And Abe worried that they shouldn't have done it. But I think they liked it. I think it did give them a sense of power. So they went on to stage more ambitious robberies. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. 
The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So you talked about them wanting better weapons, and you mentioned Merton Abe were both mechanical geniuses. And they made a lot of upgrades to their automobile in anticipation of keeping a step ahead of the law. What were were some of the things that they did to their cars to to kind of soup them up? They stole a, um, what was then a very fancy car, Packard, uh, from outside a hotel in Boston. This would have been in October. And at that point, Abe was running a radio, a wholesale radio store with uh, another fellow. The other guy had put up the money and Abe was going to contribute um, the mechanical and, and electronic expertise. So what they decided to do when they got this car, and this is before cars had radios, was that they would, uh, they did two things to the car. Uh, the first simplest thing is they set up a system so they could change the rear license plate from inside the car. There was a set of 
pulleys and, and letters and you could pull strings and the license plate and the back would change. <laughs> um, the second thing they did that was, that was, that was proved actually sort of to be their downfall, but it seemed like a smart thing at the time. They installed a police radio in the car so they could listen to what was then the brand new police motor communication, which was police radio communications. This is now 1932, and police radio had just arrived in the last year. Very few, if any, two-way radio cars. So it was mostly a one-way radio car. So you'd have a, a master transmitter, and each car, each police car would have a radio in it, and the the officers could get directions from the headquarters. This was an enormous change in law enforcement because until then, police had no way of knowing if a crime was being committed. If you were a, 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 a cop on X Street and there was a crime being committed a half mile away and there was telephone, someone called the police station, there was really no way for the police to reach you. You had to a call box, but that was a catch-as-catch-can thing. So the event suddenly, when you could have a patrol car with a radio, so if a crime happened, the, the, remember the calling all cars thing? That was real. They'd call all the cars. Anyone near this thing, go here, there's a crime being committed. That was a brand new thing in, in law enforcement. So it was an extraordinary change. And Abe and Merck presumably realized, hey, we can get a radio too. So if we're going to start committing crimes, we can listen in to what the police are saying about us. So they took a fair amount of additions to the car because they had to set up the electrical system, they had to put the radio in, they had to make sure the battery power would be would be sufficient to drive both the car and the radio. Uh, and they had to put in special suppressors, which are still called suppressors, on the ignition system so it wouldn't interfere with the radio reception. And in those days, none of that was simple. These were not plug-and-play parts. Everything was a custom, including the battery. Batteries were expensive, cranky, problem-plagued things, and people would regularly change out batteries. There were battery shops where you'd go in and drop your battery off, you'd get a new one, that fix your old when you change it back. So they had a problem with the battery in their car. This was just before the biggest heist, which was the bank robbery, where they killed, as we'll find out, uh, a number of people. What they had was a custom battery. It wasn't something you'd buy off the shelf. The, the casing, heavy-duty rubber, were made by two different manufacturers uh, and had been put together by someone to build this powerful battery. But it needed work because one of the cells in the battery wasn't working. So they took it into a battery shop in Boston, and they asked the guy to fix it, and he did. And they fixed the battery case. He, what he did, he replaced separators, which were, which are the... The, the actually wooden plates inside a battery cell that prevent short circuits inside the cell by preventing movement of certain electronic currents. So they get the battery, they put it in the car, and you figure that's the end of it. With that car, uh, they robbed the bank. So, yeah, I, I want to talk about this tragic bank robbery, the culmination of their, their short criminal careers. On February 2nd, 1934, the gang made a visit to the Needham Trust Company. If you could walk us through what happened. Sure. So they were looking for banks to rob. Uh, they had, let me just stop back. They had finally gotten themselves some heavy weapons. They stole a Thompson submachine gun 
from a state police exhibit about a week earlier. And with the Thompson, they felt that, which itself was a huge issue because it was very alarmist in Boston. They saw Thompson, a bunch of other weapons, and people thought there was, this was either a left-wing crime spree or, or gangsters or some weird thing happening. And said it was just the kids from Dorchester who appeared in no police record. So they stole the, um, the Thompson submachine gun from the state police. They had a lot of ammunition. They had a hundred round magazine. And this, now they had the weaponry they felt they needed to do serious robberies and get a big score, as they said. So they arrived in Needham at 9 a.m., February 2nd, and they, uh, pulled their car up. It was the stolen Packard with the radio inside. And they timed it so the car would park in front of the bank while a commuter train was in the commuter station next door blocking the view from downtown where there was a police patrol station. They go inside the bank, and a couple of things happen very quickly. They yell, this is a stick-up. Irv and Abe move to the back of the bank where the uh, cash drawers are. Urban aid that is, and Merritt, who's holding the Thompson, takes two hostages and takes them into a little room that's overlooking the center of town. And Merritt's there as the lookout while the two others are raiding the cash drawers inside the bank. Um, they shoot once by accident on purpose and wound a bank guard. Uh, there's one of the guys behind the, the, the teller is actually a Harvard graduate which shows you what the, the pressure was like that a Harvard graduate is working as a bank teller. And they they scoop up the cash, and this is all going on in, in, in a minute, two minutes. It's a very fast, efficient operation. And suddenly, Mert looks up, and around behind the train comes a police officer. What had happened was that the, a woman in the back of the bank had rung the alarm, and they heard it and were trying to speed it up, but what they didn't know was that the alarm went off all the time. And this was considered, you know, when, when the cops heard it outside down the street, they considered it was probably a false alarm. So one particular police officer stopped walking up, and he's not running, stopped walking up to the bank. And, and he sees him as he comes around the corner behind the train, and he yells out, there's a cop here. And then someone, uh, his, this officer was a Forge McLeod, and he, he, and someone inside the bank, probably Irv, yells, get him. And Mert opens up with a machine gun through the window and cuts down Forge McLeod on the railroad tracks. At which point, they grab their cash and they dash out of the bank, taking two people as hostages, which was something that Pretty Boy Floyd did, and they were mimicking that. They put two hostages on on the car, on the running board to the car. One guy jumps off shortly thereafter. Uh, he was a Harvard kid. The other guy, though, clings to the to the to the running board as they slowly, because you know there wasn't a there was snow on the ground, it was slippery, and they sort of move through town at at twenty twenty five miles an hour. In fact, going by the police station at one point and going by the hospital where. McLeod has just been taken to get treated. And they move their way out of town, and they reach a section of town called Newdom Heights. And by that time, police had gotten on the phone and warned everyone that to be on the lookout for these bank robbers. And one of the calls went to a fire station in Needham Heights where another police officer was on foot patrol. His name was Francis Haddock. 
And just as they're on the phone, they turn around and what's coming down the street but a package with the bank guy on the running board. And suddenly the robbers are there. And Haddock, who's standing up front talking to uh, one of the firefighters who's shoveling snow, starts to run or jog towards the street. Inside the car, Murd is driving. He has his hand on the front wheel. He has a Thompson next to him. And the two other fellows, Irv and uh, Abe, are in the back seat. As Murt approaches the intersection with the fire, uh, firehouse driveway, he sees Haddock running down, who's clawing at his pistol. And one-handed, which is pretty hard to do, Murt picks up the Thompson's machine gun and starts blasting underneath the windshield. The windshield opened up. So he stuck the gun underneath the windshield and it opens up on, on, on Haddock and uh, kills him. He wins another firefighter and left 15 or 20 pockmarks in the brick wall that were there until the 1970s when the building was torn down. And then they disappear. They push the bank guy off the car a little few blocks later on, and and they disappear on the way back to Boston. And the, the thing that's extraordinary about this is that this has never happened in Massachusetts before. There had never been the sort of machine gun killing. The, the killing of two police officers in one town in the suburbs. And it was happening just in the midst of a huge crime scare in Boston. And they had no idea who did it. And so there was a a panicked, massive manhunt underway. There was a huge award put up, $20,000, which was $300,000 in current uh, in current value. And um, the first few days of the manhunt were chaotic. Uh, what, happened, what they did is they went back home to Dorchester and tried to resume their normal lives. Abe went back to the store. Mert and, and Norma left for New York City, and Irv stayed at home. So the gang tried to maintain a low profile, and the police were basically at a standstill. Merv and Abe had, had done a decent job of covering their tracks at the bank. They didn't leave much by way of evidence, but, but it took a couple of crack detectives with the help of two newspaper reporters, to find the evidence necessary to connect the murders to the Mill and Faber gang. Is that right? Correct. So there was no evidence. There were no fingerprints. There were no photographs. The descriptions of the, of the, of the bank robbers varied. There was no, no good license plate number. And police were at a loss. The first few days, um, the state police, the local police, and the Boston police conduct this massive roundup, which you could never do today, would be highly unconstitutional, where they essentially brought in everyone they could think of was a criminal uh, and sweated them over, you know, gave them the fifth degree and came up with nothing. There was also a lot of police infighting going on at the time because the governor at this time was trying to consolidate all the local police departments in Massachusetts into one statewide force, in part because of a national police reform movement in response to all the gangsterism of the, of the uh, bootlegging era, all the local police officers were opposed to this consolidation because it meant they would have been given up their own payrolls and, and perks and, and authority. So initially, they refused to bring in the people who were considered the best detectives in the state, the best investigators in the state, which was a special unit in the state police that had been formed about 10 years earlier 
drawn from expert detectives and, and other local departments. And, and these guys were sort of the Massachusetts FBI. And they were very good. Um, except they were remarkably, remarkably smart guys. And I think part of it's because there were no other routes up for blue collar kids in those days, particularly during the Depression. So what you had is really, really well read, smart guys working for a relative pittance on the state police detective force. So finally, partly because of the sort of lousy investigation going on, two Boston newspapers reporters start their own investigation. One of them gets involved because he actually lived in Needham, lived next to a Needham police officer, and was outraged what had happened. His name was Joe Deneen, who was a famous Boston newspaper reporter. He was one of the go-to people for Joe Kennedy, John Kennedy, the president John Kennedy's father, who was a big figure in, in, in Massachusetts at that time. Deneen was a great writer. And he decides, and he had contacts everywhere, he decides he's going to start investigating on himself. He's joined by a second reporter, Lawrence Goldberg, who was the sort of ace crime reporter of the region. He worked for the Boston Post. He was a decorated hero from World War One, and he was sort of known as a character about town. And for some reason, and I, I don't know why it happened, with everything left over, a lot of records. This is never explained. The two men team up and they start holding back information from their stories in an attempt to help the police. One of the things they do is that they go to officials and say, the local guys and the Boston cops are screwing up the investigation. You have to bring in the hot shots from the state police. And the two guys who were the best were, were a guy by the name of Stokes and a guy by the name of Ferrari who also happened to be sources of these guys, too. So it sort of worked both ways. And Stokes and Ferrari come in and take over the investigation. And they're under enormous pressure because even they aren't getting anywhere. There's absolutely no, they're coming up with actually no leads. And they really don't know what they're going to do. Okay, so the method they're using, or what, what they're trying to do is it's hoping that to find someone who knows something. So, so they're at a loss at this point this moment for anything until about a week or so after the crime. They have the burst of luck because someone finds a burnt out car in the woods. This is the, is the Packard. They had panicked and a few days after the robbery, they had taken the car out to the woods in Norwood and torched the car one night. And a day or so later, someone sees a torched car there and they call the police and the police bring it in and they think this this resembles the description of a car in the bank robbery. And so they, might, they have their first potential lead. And so they tear the car apart, take apart everything. And they what they discover is that there was probably a police radio built into the car. And they discover two other things. One is that there's a suppressor, which is an unusual piece of electronic equipment that had been attached to the ignition. And what it is, it was suppressed radio waves. And they also found the battery inside the car, which was unusually sized battery. They don't know what any of this means. But coincidentally, they had picked up another man who had been connected to a bookie ring that was operating in the bank and that police thought perhaps was involved somehow in the robbery. So they bring this guy in and they sweat him one night in the Needham police station. And in his pocket, Stokes finds a piece of paper. 
it's, it's a piece of paper for a storage battery exchange. And by this time, Stokes knows that the battery in the car was probably not the original battery, just that's not how things worked in those days. So he goes to this guy being sweated and he says, you know, you changed your battery out. If we go to this station with the battery we got from the car, is he going to tell us that, yeah, this is a battery I gave you? And he's going to link you to the murder, to the bank robbery? And the guy says, no, 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 no. You can go see this guy. You can take whatever batteries you have. I'm telling you, this wasn't me. Go ahead. And it was a long shot because by this time, they had concluded this fellow, this bookie, wasn't involved. And as an indication of how little they thought of this idea, they didn't even send a police officer out to do it. They sent the brother of someone who worked at the station with the battery to go to the battery repairman and ask him, is this the battery you sold to the bookie? you go into the bookie. If it was, the bookie was guilty because it was the battery from the getaway car. If it wasn't, the book is clear. So the brother takes it to the battery man and looks at it and says, I've never seen that battery before. And neither has almost anyone else because it's a custom battery. It's, and he points out to them that it's made by two different manufacturers. The parts come from two different manufacturers. So the guy takes it back to the police, to the police officer and say, the bookie has nothing to do with this battery, but the battery man said this is an unusual battery. And unusual is important because then they can maybe trace it. So this is the first thing they have that allows them maybe to trace something back to someone else or to some other place. But how do you trace a battery? There's hundreds of battery shops. You run the battery to each shop. I mean, it becomes, they, they even went through a, drew up a list of all the battery shops and they came up with something like 80 just within Greater Boston. Who said, was, who said the battery was even made within Greater Boston or that they didn't drive from New York City for this bank robbery? They're, they're really facing a, a, a sort of a dilemma on how to get this information out. Meanwhile, the two newspaper reporters are pushing the police to give them some news tips, and they're, and they're arguing back and forth to get a picture of the battery because they hear about the battery, and they said, well, we can put a picture in the paper. And the police are resisting for a variety of reasons. First off, they say, well, if someone recognizes the battery, the killers may just go and kill the person who fixed it. So we may just be getting someone killed. But it turns out that inside the battery, they had opened it up by this time, and they had found this custom repair job. And it was argued that the custom repair job was so unique and if a picture was run in the newspapers, the reporters argued, someone would recognize it and come forward and say, yeah, I did that job. And they finally persuaded the state police to let them do it. And on that Sunday, the picture runs in the Boston newspapers. And there's a guy sitting in his house on Sunday afternoon who opens up the paper, sees the picture of the battery, and says, I fixed that battery. And the person he calls, the first person to learn about it, isn't a police officer, but Benin from the Boston Globe, because the battery man's wife was friends with Benin's wife. So she calls Benin's wife. Benin's wife calls him, and he tries to find and told and is told that the battery was made but repaired for a guy by the name of Miller in Dorchester on a particular street. And so he and, uh, and uh, Goldberg come into the office, 
and they try and look up that address, but it doesn't exist. But they do find a miller on that street. And they go, Miller, Miller, let's go. So they call the police saying, we think we have a guy. Here's the address. We'll see you there. So they go to the house after waiting a while for the police to arrive. And they get there, and there's no one there. And they think they're too late. But instead, they knock on the door and discover that the police have never come. And they have this long conversation with Joe Millen, and they meet Irv Millen, and they talk with him and conclude that these are the guys because they're lying about things they know about. And they decide to take off when they see a magazine to a semi-automatic pistol lying on a bookcase in, in the uh, in the hallway. And they flee, and that evening they go back to the police and tell them we found the murders, and they did. And that's how the Millens were discovered. And they took down Mert Millen in a pretty spectacular fashion. And let's talk about Abe Faber's apprehension as well, if you don't mind. Abe had gone back to his, his store and tried to live a normal life. And Ferrari was the guy assigned to Abe, and Stokes was the guy who was hunting down the Millens. Uh, the Millens had fled to uh, New York City and Washington, and Mert had a friend in New York City who wanted to be a New York City policeman. And Norma in New York City sent a postcard back home. Through the family members and through this guy in New York City, they end up tracking Mert down and setting the stage for a trap, setting a trap in a, in a New York, in the Lincoln Hotel in New York City. And what happens is sort of classic movie style. Mert's New York City friend is in the hotel, and when he sees Mert and Irv walk in, he gives a signal, and in two separate incidents, the police descend on them in the lobby and place them under arrest. Mert doesn't go without a fight and grabs a detective's gun and gets a shot off, or a shot rings out from the gun, and uh, he comes close to actually killing him. It's within inches of his face, and he gets arrested that way, and so there's this shootout in the New York City lobby near Times Square becomes big news in New York City. And the interesting thing is that at the same time, they were closing in on Abe because they knew about Mert's friend in New York City, and they were watching the post for letters to and from. And they knew a letter was coming to Abe from Mert's friend in New York City, and they wanted to get access to it. And Abe, who was trying to outsmart Ferrari, failed. I mean, Abe had a lot of book learning, but Ferrari was a very street smart cop. Ferrari's interesting on his own sake. He was the first Italian-American on the state police detecting force. He looks very bookish, actually. The pictures of him looks like a school librarian. But he outwits Abe, and he ends up getting his hands on the letter. And that brings them to the secret hideout they had in a garage in Dorchester when they had kept the car and weapons and stuff that linked them to the bank robbery and the other killings and the other robberies. And so coincidentally, at the exact time that Mert was being captured in the New York City hotel lobby, Abe had confessed and taken Ferrari to the garage in Boston. These two events literally happened within an hour on each other in two separate cities. Uh, so Abe really broke down and confessed and talked. And it was Abe's talking that sort of sealed their doom. 
And it was why, since they had, had confessed, that the trial became not an issue of whether they were guilty or not, but whether they were insane. The only defense they had was that the three guys were all insane. So this trial was, was a, a titillating affair. What were the strategies used by the prosecution in trying the case, and how did the defendant's attorneys counter? Well, the, the trial took place in the same county that the Sacco Benzetti trial had occurred in about 10 years earlier. And a lot of the same people were still involved. And even then, the Sacco and Benzetti were two anarchists who were accused of another robbery and holdup where a bank guard died, which made people still believe they were innocent. And this was still an ongoing source of frustration for the local court system. So this time, when they had two more ethnic immigrant types, they wanted to make sure there was never going to be any question about the fairness of the trial. So they bent over backwards and allowed them to go ahead with an insanity defense, even though there were doubts about whether that should have been allowed. The judge involved was a very fair guy. And he opened up a can of worms with that because in order to give them full latitude, he allowed the two families to try and prove that their sons were insane. And the families made the decision well, the only way they could do that was to prove that they were insane. The whole argument was became, our kids are insane because of us. We're insane. We passed insanity down to them, and you can't blame them for acting insane when they just inherited these insane personalities. And, and it was a remarkable decision on the part of the family. So this was all bullshit, excuse my language. None of this, I mean, there was mental illness in both families, but the families had made a concerted effort that uh, made the decision that in order to save their kids, they would, from a death sentence, they would sacrifice themselves in front of the public. So how, do, how do, that happened in two ways. The Millens had person after person testify to insanity running in this family. One psychiatrist, defense psychiatrist, came up with a chart that showed all these insane people on it and one person after another got up and talked about this person committed suicide, this person wasn't saying this was Mert's odd behavior, this was Abe's odd behavior, or Herb's odd behavior, Myerson, the psychiatrist, called to testify. That was their tack. The Faber people initially tried to do the same thing, to try and show that the mother in particular was insane and she had passed this insanity down to her son. The problem was, beyond the actual fact of their acts, which were not those of the same people and the people who didn't know what they were doing, which is the definition, the criminal definition of insanity, someone who does not know that, that the fact that they are committing a crime doesn't understand that. Well, clearly, the defense argued they did. Look at they planned it. They had guns. They had a getaway car. They had a radio. They had uh, this tricky license place thing. They had done multiple crimes, and the, the prosecutor says, how, how can these be considered the acts of insane people? So at the, towards the end of the trial, which went on for two and a half, three months, um, and involved 17 different psychiatrists, the defense attorney for Faber comes up with a new technique, which is that Faber's suffering from syphilitic insanity. His, he gets his father to take the witness stand and testify that he had contracted syphilis from a prostitute before he got married, that he had passed the syphilis to his wife, and his wife had passed it to their son, and Abe was suffering from the last stages of congenital syphilis. 
glass stages of congenital syphilis, and glass stages of congenital syphilis is death preceded by insanity. And that was your argument. And it was an extraordinary thing for the father to get up and in that era in Boston say, I, I passed syphilis onto my wife and child. It was so outside the realm of accepted behavior that most of the Boston papers never even printed anything about it. Or they, and there was enormous press coverage going on. I mean, there were hundreds of articles, daily coverage on the front page of six or seven competing Boston papers. And it either went unmentioned or was mentioned obliquely, this testimony about syphilitic insanity. But that's what he did. And, and they tried to introduce medical evidence that he had syphilis. And that was inconclusive. Abe may have had syphilis. Actually, it's possible. But if he had it, he got it from the prostitute. Because he certainly didn't suffer from syphilitic insanity. And there was no evidence because, you know, late-stage syphilis has other physical manifestations, none of which Abe had. So the jury testified for, I think, six hours and came back guilty death penalty. But it was a hugely controversial case because there were huge crowds. People were outraged at the murders, and there were vigilantes had organized who had decided to raid the prison and kill the prisoners if they got life in jail. And this was taken so seriously that the state police sent two squads of timing gun carrying state police officers out to the scene. One was inside the courthouse, one was at the jail to foil any attempt to break them out and lynch them. So the public anger at the murder of the two police officers was very intense. It was, all this was exacerbated. And one of the reasons why it got all the attention it got was because of the interfaith marriage and the beauty of Norma Brighton. She was really a knockout. And so the tabloids converted this saga into a sort of a Barney and Clyde or Auntie in love and that sort of a thing. So when it becomes Norma's turn to go to trial, she is only charged with being accessory after the fact of murder for helping them dispose of the car that was burnt out in Norwood. That got people upset because many people thought she should have been charged with murder. But she test what comes out in that testimony, and it's a little bit of this made public, most of what we know from paper records, is that the marriage with Mert was never consummated because he couldn't get his penis inside her. Now, whether that was because he was not sexually aroused, because she was a woman and he was a guy, or that's one reason. The other reason, which is what this probably was the case, when they can't consummate the marriage, they go to a doctor, and the doctor suggests that Norma has to have an operation. And the only operation that seems relevant to this is something called hymenectomy, in very, very rare instances, but you can look it up, this exists, a woman's vagina is so tightly closed by the hymen that normal penetration can't end her virginity, and there has to be a small surgical decision made. That may have been what happened. We know that a doctor recommended uh, surgery. We don't know if she had it. We do know that they finally had sex probably right after the bank robbery in Needham. It's probably the first time they had sex together. So the men are sentenced to death. 
how long does it take the state from the point of sentencing to their execution, and how were they executed? Yeah, they're executed about a year later after appeals fail, and they're um, executed at midnight at, in an electric chair in Boston. And one by one, they're brought in in Charleston State Prison. Mert goes first, doesn't say much of anything. Irv, his brother, goes next, and his last words are, I salute my brother, Merton, which is, if there's evidence of anything that he he was a weak-minded, that has to be it. There was a lot of reaction afterwards that people thought, Irv, but it shouldn't have been killed. He should have gotten life in prison. And then Abe came last, and I didn't say much of anything when he went. He's um, He did recite the Jewish prayer, and then he was executed. He did leave behind, though, a, a lengthy series of newspaper articles that were later printed in the Boston, I think it was the Post, and also a autobiographical piece printed in Liberty Magazine uh, after he died, which was at that time a national high-circulation magazine weekly, in which he, he complained that he became a criminal because society didn't understand him. Norma gets out of jail shortly thereafter, disappears for a while, marries a musician. She moves to New York City. When they broke in the later years of the Depression, this is 39 or so, she becomes a taxi dancer, which, after she had a child, which involves, um, she cut it, she describes cutting her gown down low, her dresses down low to show off her breasts, and charging them 10, dollars, 10 cents for uh, a dance, a dime a dance, and a dance hall. This was widely done by women to earn money. It was considered sort of the next thing to prostitution. And she explained that the way to really make money off this was to let the guys think you're going to have sex with them, but then not, which was dangerous because some of the guys, if you have to pay dimes for dances and not getting physical interaction they wanted, would, would beat the woman. Ultimately, after the war, she and her husband moved to northern New Jersey. He opens a a Turner Park, and she ends up in 1964 in California in the garment district of Los Angeles, which is sort of skid row, and she dies of a heart attack caused by acute alcoholism. Uh, her son, who had graduated high school, had been in the Army, admits himself to a mental institution. You could do that in New Jersey in those days, and is there for a couple of years, never leaves, and while he's there, a woman, a young wife, admits herself, and one day he kills her. And where does this woman? Is sent to the New Jersey Hospital for the Mentally Insane, where he hangs himself. And um, that's how the story ends. Wow, what a, what a tragic ending for the family. So I, I did want to ask you about this. Your grandmother was called to testify at the trial, wasn't she? They wanted her to testify, yeah, and she refused to do it. Um, the, the, what happened was that the sisters of Merton Irv were going around to people, family members, asking them to come and testify to insanity in the family. And most people didn't. A couple of people did, but most people didn't, either because they didn't believe it or more likely it was, it was, a, it was dangerous to do. I had a, a, uncle, a great uncle lost his job because he was a villain. People wouldn't hire him, and oh, they fired him. He was a typewriter salesman, and the, t- and, the, and the guy said, I can't have you as a villain going around representing yourself. 
you know, to, to people that's working for our company. And there were mobs, you know, at the, at the jail all the time, people threatening us, I said, vigilante justice. So I think there was probably two things. My grandmother didn't want to go because she didn't want the public opprobrium, and she probably didn't want to say that we're insane. Uh, I think by combination of those things. I mean, clearly there was insanity in Mert and Joe, and they may well have been mentally ill people in their family. They probably were. But, but I would argue that almost every family has people with mental problems, mental illness in it. And even if there was a bit more in the Millen, that branch of the Millen family than others, there really was no justification for the insanity defense. And Abe, in his writings, admits all that. You know, he it's interesting. In, in, in the Liberty Magazine piece that came up after his death, his posthumous autobiography says they were trying to set up a criminal conspiracy. So, yeah, we were trying to do that. He admits it all. You've got a great website with links to Amazon and Barnes & Noble so people can buy your book. Do you, do you mind talking about your website for a minute? Yeah, so... I set up a website where you can see some pictures, and you can read an excerpt of the first chapter. It's www.nathangorenstein.com, and uh, I'm going through it right now. And if you click through, you can read some of the reviews. You can listen to a, another interview that's done with me on, on Radio Boston, and if you're amenable, I'll link your um, webcast to this, too, when you get it done. You can read parts of Chapter 1, and you can read a brief history of the Millen Fable Gang, and there's some great pictures of, uh, of, of from the book of um, the people who were involved, Merton, Abe, and uh, Norma, and the patrolmen that they killed in their families. I appreciate your time so much today. Thanks. I, I thank you a lot. Thanks again to Nathan Gorenstein, author of Tommy Gun Winter, Jewish Gangsters, A Preacher's Daughter, and the Trial That Shocked 1930s Boston. I'm Eric Rivenis, and this has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Thanks for listening, and as always, have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.